Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are finishing up the book of Revelation today. That is an exciting thing for us. We spent the year looking at this book, vision by vision, seeking to understand the theological implications, the truths that are revealed in it, and what it means for us. So today we're wrapping it up with verses 6 through 21. And I thought we'd start with a riddle. Who likes riddles? Me neither. Riddles are terrible. They're not fun, unless you know the answer to them. Then they're fun. And usually you only know the answer because you heard it before, and now you can act like you hadn't heard it and be smart in front of your friends when they tell you the riddle. All right, let's try a riddle. If I have it, I don't share it. If I share it, I don't have it. What is it? Who said that? Oh, Kelly Hochstetter in the house. Uh, Kelly Hochstetter is a longtime member. She moved away, but she visits every once in a while. So if you know Kelly, be sure and give her big hugs after the service, not during, because it's Bible time right now. Um, yes, secret. That's what it is. It's a secret. Oh, see, you're so smart. You just have all, you know, all of the riddles. Some things are meant to be kept to ourselves, right? Some things you don't share. Some things you're not supposed to share. And other things you have to share. You're supposed to share it's wrong to not share it. And part of the struggle that some of us have as Christians is we treat the gospel, the word of God, the faith once for all delivered to the saints more like a secret than a message we're supposed to herald, proclaim, and even sing. As we're looking at these last verses in the book of Revelation, verses 6 through 21, here is the principle I want us to hold on to. I'm going to have six points, but there's one principle. So hold on to this one principle. Very simple. God's revelation is given to us to share with others. That's it. God's revelation, and by revelation, yes, I mean the book of Revelation, but I also mean the whole book of God's revelation. God's revelation is given to us to share with others. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to go through it you know, fairly linearly, but we're going to be popping around a little bit and putting some verses together to see how they match up in this chapter. But what I want us to see is that the book of Revelation and all of Scripture essentially calls us to six points of action according to this passage. The book of Revelation and all of God's revelation teaches us, number one, to be prepared. Book of Revelation is given to prepare you for what must soon take place. Look at verse six. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. What must soon take place. That's really what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is not primarily about the things that are going to happen way into the future. It talks about some of those things. But it's really about the things which must soon take place. It's, it's, it's a book that unfolds the plan of God for his people throughout the church age leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. It's the unfolding plan of God. As, as we read the book of Revelation, we are seeing this, this ongoing opposition that the devil and the world have with the church, with Jesus, with the truth. In fact, what must soon take place. Here's really what, what the, the revelation uh, of John here is getting at. What must soon take place is the theme of the book. 
What must soon take place is the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and the world. If you've been with us, you should be able to recite that, right? That the theme of the whole book of Revelation that runs throughout of it, all of the visions, all of them are pushing this idea that Jesus Christ is victorious in and through his church over the devil and the world that stands against him and his people. We see this over and over again. And so this is what must soon take place. The ongoing but increasing hostility that the church will experience from the world, the attacks from the devil, but the ultimate victory. We are more than conquerors, even if we suffer unto death as God's people, because when we die, we do not perish. We enter into glory. We have life forevermore that we experience now in part but we will experience it with Christ and with his people forever. God gives us revelation to prepare us for the life that he has laid out before us. This book is given to you. You can just go down to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus, who has all authority, who is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, has given this word to the church with a very specific purpose, right? If you talk about the theme of the book of Revelation, we would say it's the, it's the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil in the world. But the purpose is different than the theme. Why was it written? The reason it was written was to encourage and strengthen churches that are going through tribulation. And churches are going through tribulation at all times in, in every country to greater or lesser degrees. We experience opposition and attack. Sometimes it's subtle and dangerous. Sometimes it's overt and dangerous. Sometimes it's at the cost of our lives. Sometimes it's just at the cost of our livelihood. Sometimes it's at the cost of our reputation. But the book was given for the purpose of encouraging and strengthening the church as it experiences tribulation. In other words, it's given to the church to prepare the church for opposition, for resistance, for their calling to be the people of God in a world that doesn't want the people of God. This book prepares us you want to be prepared for the life that God has laid out before you? You want to be ready for a life of following Jesus in this world? Then you must do it according to this book. You have to do it with this book in your hand, in your heart, on your mind, on your lips. This book is the thing that God uses to prepare you. Apart from it, you will be caught flat-footed and get knocked out. What about God's grace? I thought God's grace was going to come to me and support me and change me and sanctify me. Yes, that's how it works. God's grace, his sanctifying power, all of it comes through the ministry, the reading, the believing, the receiving of his word. This is given to us from Jesus, who is called the root of David, the, the bright morning star. These are Old Testament references to, to Isaiah 11 and Numbers 24. He is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to the patriarchs, that were made through the prophets, that were made to David, the king that would sit on his throne, that would reign forever, not for a thousand years, would reign forever, right? This king gives us this word 
to prepare us. Like we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, that is the person of God, that is every believer, may be complete, equipped for every good work. You can't do the things that God calls you to do apart from this book. And we'll see why. Because this book, this revelation, the book of Revelation and all 66 books was given to us that we might be prepared, but secondly, it was given to us that we might obey God, respond to God in faith, repentance, and obedience. Look at verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. We'll come back to that. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words. Now, how does that work? Because I think a lot of us think like, okay, so blessedness is a state of God's favor. It's divine favor. And can you earn God's favor? No. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't obey enough. So then you finally built up enough collateral. God's like, okay, I'm going to loan you some of my favor now. doesn't work that way. God's favor is given as a gift. So what can it mean then to say, blessed is the one who obeys, who keeps these words? The blessedness, the, the favor, the grace that we receive in obedience to the word is the conveying of grace through the ministry of the word. It gets back to what I mentioned earlier, sanctification. You're growing. You're becoming the person God has designed you to be, called you to be, and can make you become. It happens through this book. It's not that the book is filled with magical incantations so that if you say it right or memorize enough of it, you will be suddenly changed. It is the revelation of God himself that he uses to transform us by the renewing of our minds. He makes us better by making us more fully human. Beings made in God's image who are beginning to reflect that more and more. This is a call to believe God. This is a call to obey God. He gives us this book to respond to, not just to have, not just to hold. This book must be kept, not kept on a shelf, not kept in your backseat of your car, kept in your heart. That's where the book belongs. And listen, there's a warning here. Look at verses 18 and 19. It relates. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book book that is a warning there will be no addition there will be no subtraction to this revelation and yes that's a reference to the book of revelation but it also applies to the whole of God's revelation we don't have the right to add to it nor to take away from it to add to God's revelation to add to his word is to say more than God you know who says more than God when it comes to revelation and scripture and religion. You want to know who says more than God says? False teachers, perhaps most often seen in what we would call legalists. 
Legalists are people who will tell you God's will for your life is something not really explicitly found in Scripture, but something that I like to articulate on my own. The legalist tells you that there are laws God wants you to keep that they have created themselves. They aren't found in Scripture. They don't reflect the heart of God. They are man-made religious laws that do not sanctify, that do not honor God. They dishonor God because they are adding to his word. It's heresy. To add to God's word is legalism. To add to God's word is to lie because you're saying that God is saying something that he doesn't say. Anytime we take principles, we see this happening in churches, we see it happening with preachers, we see it happening on Facebook and Instagram and social media by just Christians. We will take a principle, uh, an idea that we think is good and valuable, and we will hold it up and we will prop it up with Scripture as if it is a part of God's revelation when it isn't. Your principle might be a good thing. It might be a noble idea. But it is not God's word. It should not be equated with God's word. Anyone who adds to it should expect judgment and condemnation because you are, by adding to God's word, rejecting God's word. And to subtract. To add to God's word is to say more than God. To subtract from God's word is to say less than God. You know who does this? False teachers, right? False teachers. And if... if adding to God's word is most popularly or most commonly seen in legalism that tells people that to obey and honor God, you have to keep these rules and these laws that are not found in scripture. Then subtracting from God's word or saying less than God is most typically seen in what we would call licentiousness, which is, well, uh, ignoring if not outright cutting out portions of the Bible, ignoring what God's word says in order to do what I want to do. In other words, we say less than God's word because we want to pursue things that we know God is against. We don't want to deal with it, so we, we chase sin. The consequence for this is the same as the consequence for adding to God's word. It's judgment. This is the person who has rejected the revelation, the will of God, and in doing so, God himself. Why did God give us this word? Well, he gives us his revelation, his word, to share with others, right? But this book we see when it is given to us, it's, it, it has these calls to action, right? So we're called to be prepared for this life, for this world. We're, we're called to obey God. We're called, third, to worship God. The, the book of Revelation calls us to this action of worshiping our triune God. Look at verses eight and nine. I, John, that's the apostle John, uh, the, the, the John that reclined with Jesus at the table, super tight with Christ, close friends. He's the John that wrote the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and this. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel <laughs> who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. What is going on with John worshiping the angel? And it's not like it's the first time either. Homeboy did the same thing in chapter 19. Saw the shiny angel, woohoo, and starts worshiping the angel. I love that John does this. It's wrong. I mean, it's not a good thing. I love that he does it. I love that he does it two times because it is a great example 
that there isn't a saint alive that doesn't have to be rebuked multiple times, that there isn't a saint alive that doesn't have to be corrected for blowing it big time, multiple times. Think about your sins. Think about the sins that you are embarrassed about that you would definitely not want to say on a Sunday morning in front of everybody. How many times did you have to be corrected on that sin? How many times do you have to be rebuked? Whether it's the spirit of God just convicting you internally or it's somebody else pointing at you going, hey man, you better knock that off. You're gonna destroy your life. How many times? More than one. More than two. The best of God's people need constant correction. And John, <laughs> John's messing up worship. Again, it's an angelic, it's an exalted being. It's got to be freaky. It could be confusing. I don't know what they look like. I don't think they look like Jesus, but whatever. I'm not going to judge him. I'm going to understand him. John's mistake here helps us to understand that it's a common problem. We all need grace. Mercy, correction is a grace, a mercy. But the angels charge is what? Worship God. Don't worship what you think is best. Don't worship the God of your imagination, the God that you can conceive of. Do not settle for worshiping for the God that eases your conscience. You're not called to worship the God of your conscience, the God that you create, the God that, that seems to fit within your own worldview. You're called to worship the God of the Bible and your conscience and your worldview need to come around that. I mean, if we're honest, a lot of us, if we're honest, a lot of us, we have a God. Okay, a lot of, a lot of us Bible-believing Christians, this, we worship God and we want to worship him in spirit and in truth. But if we were honest, there are times when we would rather worship a God of our preference. There are just times when it's like, you know, we're, we're dealing with hard truths in scripture and we're like, man, I would prefer to worship a Jesus that doesn't send anybody to hell. Most of my friends who have died have died and as far as I can tell have perished. And I can reason that out and be like, okay, well, it's still, it's still justice and it's still good, but it's still terrible. And the God of my preference would save everybody. But I don't just get to determine who God is and I don't get to invent the God in order to worship that God. I mean, I can but we're called to worship God. Revelation calls us to worship the God that is revealed. You, you would prefer a God who didn't discipline you in the midst of being disciplined, right? Even Hebrews says, like, nobody likes discipline when they're getting it, right? When you're disciplined by God. It means that God brings some form of affliction into your life to correct you because of ongoing unrepentant sin, right? And so uh, maybe it's the affliction of your conscience or he could use circumstances or physical pain or whatever. There's a lot of ways that God can use those things uh, for corrective purposes. And in the midst of it, no one enjoys it. It's horrible. In the moment, I'd prefer, hey, you know what I'd prefer? Uh, maybe, maybe not tough love, just like, uh, like easy love, <laughs> That'd be better. But we learn and we know that, oh no, that's, that, that grace of discipline is what brings me to the, the better, healthier place where I can now share in his holiness and I know the danger of my sin and, and I've, I've learned the preciousness of, of, of being, maintaining communion with God through faith and repentance. Revelation calls us to worship God. This book moves us to worship. If you're struggling to worship, if you're, if you're struggling like, eh, 
She's not even feeling it, you know, because you don't get to have the angelic visions that John has. You think like, oh, you know, that, that would make all of the difference. Well, look what happened to John. He still messed it up. You think like, well, what am I supposed to I'm not feeling it? I don't, I don't want to go to church and fake it. Um, you will never be moved to worship God if you separate yourself from his revelation. He makes himself known. He shows you his beauty, his glory. You understand him and you understand the world and you understand yourself and your place. If you want to be moved to worship, if you want to restore a joy of salvation that leads to triumphant worship, then you must hold this book and you must hold it in your heart. All right, so this book of Revelation teaches us to be prepared to obey God, to worship God. Number four, what we've really kind of been pushing throughout this whole thing, this book calls us to share it, to share the message, to share the, 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 the themes, the truths, the doctrines. Look at verses 10 and 11. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. We have revelation to share it. Don't seal it up. Don't hide it. Don't put it away. This is not just for you. It's for the world. It's for every tribe and tongue and nation. It's for everybody. It's for people who don't know they need it. It's for people who do not want it. It should be held out and offered to all. And this is really important for us because we, especially as Baptists and, and evangelicals and people, Christians in the more reformed traditions, we like scripture and we value scripture. We want to study scripture. We have commentaries and Logos Bible software. You know, we have scripture printed on t-shirts and we, 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 we put scripture all around us and we value things like hermeneutics. Right, the science and the art of interpreting scripture. We value interpretation. Right? This is why we value ministries like Word Partners. Right? Because they're all about teaching and equipping local churches and leadership to rightly interpret the word of God so that they can properly preach it. But one of our problems is as Christians is we, we sort of stop the process short. I read my first book on hermeneutics. I've been a Christian for two years and I realized like nobody's ever taught me how to interpret the Bible. I better find a book on that, right? So I, I looked for a book, Living by the Book, I think is what it was called. And uh, so it was a simple book on interpretation. It was really helpful. And, uh, and I thought this was really good. But what I learned over time is that a lot of us are, are pretty content. We feel like we've done it when we say like, okay, there are principles that should guide us in interpreting scripture. You have to know the genre, right? The genre in which it is written is gonna help you to understand the principles that best apply to interpreting it. And we have scripture that leads to interpretation. And once we have a proper interpretation, we're like, ah, done. But that's not the end. God didn't give you scripture to interpret it, but to interpret it and then proclaim it. We're interpretation should lead to proclamation. If it doesn't, we're stopping short. We're, we're, we're not completing uh, the, the call here. We're, we're doing something else. We, we've maybe gained something for ourselves, but we are denying it to others. This is meant to be shared. In fact, uh, the, one of the passages that I go to quite a bit in my life is 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. But listen to verse 9 in particular. 
1 Peter 2, 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So he's talking to the church and he's saying, hey, listen, you're not just a bunch of individuals, okay? You are, but you are a people. God has made you into a people. And he's using these Old Testament titles uh, of, of the people of God, of, of Israel, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, God made you who you are now in Christ. He made you a part of his people, and as his people, you are meant to proclaim, herald, preach, announce, declare, speak up in the world about this book, about what it says about God, his holiness, his son, his spirit, his creation, our fall our need, the work of redemption, eternal life. He gives us this to share. Now, I know maybe you're scared. You're like, man, it's scary. It's scary to step out and to tell people about Jesus. I get that. I understand that. I still get nervous. There are situations in which I get nervous. Um, It's like there'll be an opportunity presented, obvious, obvious opportunity I should tell this person, I should address them, and I should bring the word to God to bear in their life in a good way, in a healthy way, not in a mean way. I should do this, uh, but I get nervous or I get scared for a host of reasons, and then I try to justify it. I'm like, well, I'm very busy. I'm a very important person, I'm very busy, and I, well, I, should, I should focus on these other things right now. It's kind of one of the things I'll do. Or I'll, or I'll do this. I'll be like, you know what? I really would like, thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity. Um, but really, to talk to him is going to require more than five minutes, and I'm only going to have five minutes, so I don't want to confuse him. So I'm just going to, I'll let somebody else handle that, right? You ever do that? You think, oh, somebody else will get to it. Somebody more qualified. Who? Who? Why would you expect anybody to come along and to... Where's Steve McCoy? Hey, Steve, Steve and Molly, they were converted by listening to Pat Robertson on TV. Is that right, Steve? Yes, it was. That's right. Pat Robertson. I'm not making fun of you if you like Pat Pat Robertson, but I am making fun of Pat Robertson because he has a lot of false teaching and I don't feel bad about doing that. But in the end, look what happens. It was a televangelist who says some incredibly dumb things for millions to hear. He still preached enough of the gospel to bring two spiritually dead people to life. You're waiting around for somebody better, better than Pat Robertson? That's the point. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses screwed up presentations of the gospel, like the ones that I offer, to bring people to faith. He uses you. He expects you to be the voice, inviting people to believe. He gives you this message to share, to share with others. And the grace of God is offered to everyone. I mean, look at how it works throughout Scripture, even just right here. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride, right? Ah, the Holy Spirit and the church. The Spirit and the Bride. They say, come. Look at the invitation, big invitation. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desire to take the, the water of life without price, Come. Drink, it's free for you. That's the idea. Again, this is, 
Revelation is constantly pulling from the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 55. Verse one, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's how salvation works. God extends to you what you could never afford, what you don't have the ability to purchase. He says, no, 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 come without your money and buy it. Well, how does that work? You receive it as a gift. He extends redemption, forgiveness, cleansing, hope, eternal life true restoration of all things. He says, you can come in to my kingdom. You can be a part of my family. For you, it's free. It's costly. It's expensive, infinitely so, because Jesus had to pay for it all through his life and his death and his resurrection, but he offers it to us. Jesus says in John 7, right? Come to me and you'll drink and you'll never be thirsty. You'll always be satisfied. The book of Revelation teaches us to share it, to share the whole entire revelation of God. And we do so as the story is unfolding. Look at verse 11. This is kind of weird. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. It can sound like, so is everybody just going to do their thing and Jesus is okay with that? It's not the idea. The point is, is as this life, this world, this plan of God unfolds, this is what's going to happen. The wicked are going to do wickedness and the righteous are going to do righteousness. There's going to be a clean divide between the two. And yes, many of the wicked will become the righteous. There is repentance. There is change. There is transformation. There is a new birth. But the point is, is that you are supposed to tell the world of this good news and not base your motivation of telling it based on, uh, on, the, on the amount of people that are believing. In other words, you can preach this word and you might only see wickedness continuing. You might not see any growth. We have missionaries that have gone to the mission field, uh, missionaries like William Carey, who spend years laboring, learning the language, preaching the gospel, and seeing no conversion, only resistance, only rejection for years. But they keep doing it. Why? You might think, well, because they're holding out hope that somebody's going to believe. That's a part of it. But there's a greater reason. The greater reason, reason is because God is worth making known. He's worth talking about, regardless of the response. Now, yes, if you don't want people to believe, you've got a cold heart. But if you have a heart that is warm, then you, you share this, you tell others because God is worth making known and you want to see people come into the kingdom. Listen, if you are scared, uh, that is the, the greatest way to overcome it. If you're nervous about it, you're nervous about saying something, love overcomes it. Love for God and love for your neighbor. If you love God, if you are filled with a joy that stems from knowing the grace that you have received in him, you're going to want to talk about it. It's why you guys wear Bears jerseys or Packers jerseys or whatever jerseys you wear for your teams because you're excited. You're not on the team, right? Okay. You're definitely not on the team. But you like the team, you support the team, and you're just, it's just like you derive joy from it. If you derive joy and excitement and satisfaction from something, it's, it's hard to keep it to yourself. You wind up, it's why marathoners are so annoying because they love talking about running marathons when 99% of us are they're never going to run a marathon, right? And I'm not hating on them because I'm impressed and I'm in awe that they can run that long. Um, 
They'll, even, they'll, they'll put it on the back of their car. It doesn't, they're not even talking to anybody. They just want everybody to know, I ran over 20, 26 miles, whatever it is. I, I ran this, right? Now, I don't think most of them are proud people that are like, I don't think they're arrogant. Some are because everybody, all, all kinds of people are. I think most of them are just so excited about running. The runners that I know that run long distance, they are excited about running. They just talk about it because they're pumped about it. Same with people that are into keto or, or whatever. Like you get into stuff and you start talking about it because you're amped. If you are excited about, if you are deriving joy and satisfaction from the gospel, from Jesus, from the knowledge of God, then you will tell others. Love for God breeds this joy that motivates you to overcome your fears and love for your neighbor much in the same way. If you care about them and you don't want them to perish, you want them to have what you have been given then you will share it with them. Number five, the book of Revelation teaches us to warn others of judgment. Very specific, right? To warn of judgment. We see it in verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I'm coming. It's going to happen soon. And you need to know that there will be a recompense. Judgment is coming and you need to share the bad news. A lot of us don't like that, right? We like to share the good news. Redemption, salvation, kingdom of God, open for everybody. God loves sinners. That's what we like to talk about. The good news because it provides hope for everybody. But here's the truth. You can't convince anybody of good news unless they first understand the bad news. In fact, the two tendencies, right, to try to camp out on the good news without getting into the bad news so you don't offend anybody is just as messed up as, and wrong as those weirdos that only preach the bad news. They, they're, like, uh, they're like Jonah. They just, they, the only thing they want to do is, is proclaim judgment and desolation. Don't even want to think about the hope of redemption and restoration. And when Nineveh did repent, what happened? He was mad. He didn't like that at all. Some people love, they just want to camp out. And you've seen them with the billboards and the, the hate that they have for people. No, not offering the hope of redemption, only offering judgment. You see, if you're only offering good news without the bad news, you're irrelevant. No one's going to care because there are no stakes. There's nothing, in there, there's, there's, nothing to, there's nothing to lose. And maybe there's something to gain. But if you're only holding out judgment and no redemption, well, you're not irrelevant. You're just cruel. And you're lying. Because that's not all that God has to say on it. We have to warn people of judgment. If we care, if we care about God, his word, and if we care about people, we will warn them. We will tell them danger is coming. And it's not because they are the worst or they're worse than us. It's because they're the same as us. And the only difference is, is we have found mercy, undeserved kindness that they can have too. Number six, last one. The book of Revelation teaches us to wait for redemption. Waiting. Nobody wants to do it. We all have to do it. You're waiting. We like procrastinating. Procrastinating is different from waiting. You, you have to wait. When you're waiting for something, you're typically, you're, uh, you're in, a, in, a, in a posture that requires some level of, 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 of long suffering and patience for a thing or an experience that you long for, that you need, that you truly desire. You have to wait for it. You, gotta, you, 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 you can't have it now. You need it, but you're, you're, it's, going, it's, it's a ways off. And part of our salvation is waiting. Yes, we have eternal life now. We have the forgiveness of sins. You, we can say that we've been redeemed and that we've been saved. But the Bible also says it this way. We are awaiting our redemption. 
right? So there is a sense in which we have it now, but we're waiting its full expression in the future. Now, what awaits us? Look at verses uh, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Right? We are waiting, as God's people, we are awaiting the tree of life and the fulfillment of the kingdom, the city, the glorified experience of the saints of God. That's what we long for. We yearn for that because we live in a place that's broken and wayward and suffocating. It's hard to breathe down here at times. There's so much darkness. We want to see justice and peace. That's what we long for. And it's, it's going to happen. We're going, we're, we're going to have it. We're going to experience it. We're going to eat of that tree of life that we read about in, the, in, in Genesis. We read about it earlier in Revelation. This is the tree of life that you eat of and you live in paradise forever. Paradise. Incorruptible. No chance of it falling apart again. There, it'll be God and his people, God and our people. And we'll have all of God's good gifts and we ourselves will be perfected, freed from our frailty and our failure. book of Revelation and all of scripture really pushes these things. We have the scripture to prepare us. It calls us to obey, to, to worship, to share, to proclaim, to warn others of judgment and to wait for our redemption. See what's outside of the redemption? Outside, outside of the city? Dogs, sorcerers, immoral people. That's us. That's who we were. That's what we deserve. We deserve the outside. We're getting the inside. So we see all of this in Revelation. We're called to all of this in Revelation. We're actually called to all of this in all of Scripture. But we see it in Revelation perfectly. And yet God didn't give you the book of Revelation to end with you. He gave us Revelation to share with others, just like he gives us all of his Revelation to share with others. And praise God that he didn't leave us alone. It's not as if he, he said, okay, I've got you. I've put my seal upon you. You're saved. You're going. Wait for it, okay? Peace out. He didn't just leave us. He gave us his book, a book that he uses to actually transform and mature us and grow us. And it's a book that we use to reach other people. And we see people come from, from death to life. But he didn't just leave us with the book. He put his spirit in us. He is still with us. He hasn't abandoned us. I mean, you see verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen, that's how the book ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And that's not like some grace in your pocket, like you can have it rattling around as you're wandering uh, on, on, your, on your sojourn. The grace of Jesus with you means that God is with you. It's, let's close with this, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Before Jesus' ascension, he says this to the church. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Revelation was not just given to you, it was given to you to share with others, right? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He hasn't left us alone. He stands with us. That's why we know this truth, this theme of revelation. We know we're experiencing it in our lives. Christ is victorious with his church over the devil and the world. 
He calls us to act, to participate, to be engaged. Or perhaps the easiest way to, to make the point is to say he's, he's called us to share, to preach, to teach, to tell the truth that others might come to have what we have by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and your kindness in saving us, but not just in saving us, but then in commissioning us to, to tell others about your son and about the grace that you offer in him. We ask, Lord, that you, we would see numerous conversions, or that we would see many come to know faith in Christ, not just over the holidays, but in this next year and in the years to come before Christ comes back. In his name we pray, amen.